from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the CER podcast. My name is Camino Martela Martinez. I'm a senior research fellow at the CER, and I guess my colleagues have thoughts that there was no one better to bring you the summer edition of our podcast than a Spaniard on holidays in her sunny and delightfully messy homeland. There is, unfortunately, nothing sunny about the topic we are going to discuss today. It is, however, very messy indeed, but not delightfully so. In this week's episode, we've teamed up with the Open Society European Policy Institute in Brussels to talk about corruption and the rule of law in Europe. I know, I know, this is not your average light summer listen, but what better way to shake the gloomy feeling one gets left with after pondering the state of Europe's rule of law problems than by taking a dip in the swimming pool, a drink on a terrace, or a leisure run in a forest. The intractable twin problems of corruption and democratic backsliding will still be there in the autumn, trust me. And then, there'll be no sunny fields to run to. This episode will be a bit different than others. First, we'll bring you an edited version of an event we had on July 13th with Catalin Tech, member of the European Parliament, Vice-Chair of the Renew Europe Group and a member of Momentum, Hungary. We also had Michiel van Houten, Director of Transparency International Europe and a former MEP and European Union official himself. And last but not least, Carl Dolan, Deputy Director and Head of Advocacy at the Open Society European Policy Institute. In the second part of the podcast, I will actually talk to Carl about the main takeaways from the events, the latest twist in the Poland-Hungary rule of law saga, and what he thinks the European Union should do about it. Let's turn to the event first. A couple of months back, I wrote a paper with the very ambitious title of how to fight corruption and uphold the rule of law. The paper which is part of a series on the future of EU justice and home affairs, supported by the Open Society European Policy Institute, argues that we should worry about corruption in Europe much more than we do. That while in theory there can be corrupt systems with a functioning rule of law, and vice versa, this is rarely the case, as corruption contributes to the erosion of the rule of law by diminishing trust in institutions and governments and perpetuating cronism and illiberal regimes. Finally, the paper tries to answer its very bold title by offering suggestions on how to fight corruption and uphold the rule of law. I discuss all this with Catalin, Michiel and Carl in the next few minutes. So why should you, hopefully lying on a beach somewhere right now, care about corruption? Well, for starters, because it is expensive. It is costly to the public poor, so you're paying for it. It actually also hinders growth and investment in your country, as Catalin explains very well. I believe that a stable business environment could never foster in a country where the rule of law is not being upheld, when the, where the economy is not predictable, where you cannot count on the independence of the judiciary or just on the very simple fact that if you are doing your business right, then nobody will try to push you out of the market uh, with the backing of the government. Corruption also has the potential of toppling governments, and it has done so in various countries over the past five years. As with almost everything else, the pandemic has made things worse. Michiel talks us through the numbers. And I want to start the first point by looking at the global corruption barometer, which um, uh, Transparency International published last month and which you may have seen. 
uh, in which we surveyed 40,000 people across the EU. Uh, and that survey revealed that almost one third of people in the EU think that corruption is getting worse in their country. That's something that has uh, got worse during the, uh, the COVID uh, epidemic. Uh, three in 10 EU residents say that they directly experience corruption. 29% uh, of people say they paid a, a bribe or used a personal connection to access public services. Um, almost two thirds of people think that government corruption is a problem in their country. Uh, and only around four in 10 people across the EU think that their governments have handled the pandemic in a transparent manner. Now, as this survey, as well as other surveys show, uh, corruption has a corrosive effect on public trust in government and in the rule of law. And as your report points out, that comes at a high economic cost. So there's a strong incentive for politicians and for society as a whole to tackle corruption. But during the pandemic, we've actually seen a, a, a movement in the opposite direction with transparency and accountability being sacrificed on the altar of expediency. Uh, and the result, as we've seen, is a big increase in cases of corruption um, across the EU. Obviously, corruption is a very timely topic now, also because of the European Union's historic post-pandemic recovery fund, an enormous pot of money that was hard to agree upon and has been at the centre of a number of existential fights within the bloc ever since it was approved in July last year. The latest row involves Hungary and Poland. To disburse the money, the European Commission has asked all member states to draft national recovery plans where they have to explain how they will meet some predetermined criteria, which are called milestones and targets, which of course include having a proper system of oversight. The Commission has, for now, delayed the approval of Hungary and Poland's national recovery plans because it is not satisfied that any of the two countries has enough anti-grasp plans in place. Katalin explains what it's like to be at the forefront of the fight to tie EU money to EU values in Hungary. I'm from Hungary. Uh, it's a country which longed to become a part of the Western uh, community for many, many years. We are still one of the most pro-European communities in the entire Union. European funding is a great source of uh, wealth in the country in general. It's a very important source for us. However, when people open the news, very often the first thing they see is a corruption scandal, a grand one, about hundreds of thousands of euros going to the pockets of uh, the sunny law of Viktor Orban or uh, European funds being allocated to a summer camp for poor children, which ended up to be a lavish mansion in the hands of the Fidesz mayor's son. And in the same time, these voters also see that their democracy is being destroyed around them, that the independence of the media, the independence of the judiciary is being rolled back, that the uh, Hungarian prosecution is not taking action despite very direct signals coming from uh, Olaf, for instance, or other European bodies that there are problems, only because he is politically connected, only because he is a former member of the ruling Fidesz party. No high-level prosecution case uh, was closed in Hungary in the past decade. So in this context, these voters, these pro-European voters, who like the EU in general, who want to belong to the core of the European Union, they very often ask this question to themselves. Why do they keep on financing those who destroy democracy in my country? Do they not see the problems or do they not want to see the problems? And slowly and surely, this process is eroding trust in the European Union. Uh, and meanwhile, the effects that we see all across the continent are huge. Because right now it's not a Hungary and Poland problem anymore. Uh, democratic backsliding is spreading. Uh, you mentioned quite a lot of countries, uh, Slovenia, also Bulgaria. And if there is not a forceful and systemic response from the union side, we will see more and more countries who are inspired by uh, these uh, proceedings in Hungary uh, and just adopt the idea. And eventually it can lead to the disintegration of the union. So 
What can the European Union then do to stop corruption from blowing the project up altogether? Here are some ideas. First, the European Union could make better use of the newly minted European Public Prosecutor's Office, a EU body with fresh powers to prosecute criminals who misuse EU funds. Now, the European Public Prosecutor's Office, or EPPO's, main problem is that not all member states are members. Hungary, Poland, Sweden, Denmark and Ireland are not. Of course, that is problematic, to say the least, if you want to fight corruption all across the European Union, right? There are several ways to deal with it. One is to use something called European Investigation Orders, which are court decisions by one country asking the judiciary of another country to gather or to use evidence in criminal investigations. Because the EPPO has the power to issue these orders just like any other judicial authority, and because these orders apply to all European Union countries, except for Ireland and Denmark, which have opt-outs, in principle, the EPPO could use these orders to ask Polish and Hungarian courts to carry out anti-corruption investigations. Now, of course, the second problem would be what would happen once these orders are used, as we know that problems abound with the judiciary in Poland and Hungary. But in any case, Orban might have thought he was clever than he is by not joining the EPPO and dodging the issue altogether. Because in his view, the Hungarian government will not be able to escape the public prosecutor anyways. Some people think that Orban has you know, very neatly sidestepped a problem by refusing to join the European Public Prosecutor's Office. But actually, it's, it's just delayed, I think, some of the um, collisions that are going to happen over the next couple of years when that institution is up and running. Because even though it hasn't formally joined, there would be no national delegated prosecutor in Budapest. Um, the jurisdiction of the European Public Prosecutor runs to uh, Hungarian citizens who are implicated in crimes outside of Hungary's borders, right? And it also it runs to jurisdiction over uh, citizens of participating member states uh, that may be uh, in the crime, where the crime may have been committed. So you can imagine all kinds of jurisdictional clashes that will be coming up and, and maybe even the possibility that, you know, uh, not an unlikely possibility that some Hungarian citizen who's very close to Orban, might, that they might rush to prosecute his case first before the public prosecutor gets there so that uh, then have the, have the case dismissed or have the, um, have the defendant absolved or in some other way by, to, to prevent uh, um, double jeopardy. Um, so uh, that is just, just to say that the, there is going to be, I think, further clashes down the road between the EPO and, and the Hungarian government. But it has been suggested that probably rather than, you know, uh, do all of this uh, and face all of this, uh, it might have been smarter for um, the Hungarian government to join in the first place and do what Orban has been systematically doing with the rest of the European institutions, which is subvert and undermine it within. The second idea to stop corruption from destroying the European Union altogether, if I may say so, um, is to establish a stronger link between European Union funds and European Union values. Now, this is precisely what a law passed in November 2020, the so-called rule of law conditionality mechanism, is supposed to do. Under this law, European Union payments can be paused if there are problems with the rule of law or systematic breaches of EU values in a given country. Now, I just said that this law was passed in November 2020. It is July. It has still not been used, not because there are no problems, but because under a compromise found by the member states in December 2020, this law is now frozen. The reason why is that in December 2020, the European Union was trying to agree 
on the recovery funds. Budapest and Warsaw both threatened to veto the recovery funds and as a token they wanted the rule of law mechanism to be scrapped altogether. Now the midway that the German government mainly found was to say okay guys we're not going to apply this law until or if there is a court challenge examining its validity and of course what did Hungary and Poland do? In March they launched proceedings before the European Court of Justice questioning the legality of this rule of law conditionality mechanism. Now because the ECJ has not yet ruled on this, on this law, uh, it hasn't been applied yet. I am one of the few enthusiastic people about this compromise, probably. Well, I wouldn't call myself enthusiastic, but optimistic for sure, because I believe that the compromise was a clever political gimmick to buy time and save the recovery fund. I also believe that the mechanism will eventually be applied once the European Court of Justice green lights it, as it will. And that meanwhile, the stringent oversight mechanism of the national recovery plans will allow the Commission to tighten the screws on uncompliant governments. Not many people share my enthusiasm, I am afraid. This rule of law conditionality mechanism is union law since January the 1. Uh, and the Council conclusions are not part of the European legislative framework. I believe that you cannot really start defending the rule of law by breaking the rule of law at the first place. Uh, the, the fact that the commission is not applying this mechanism, is voluntarily suspending it until the court delivers its ruling, uh, it's just fundamentally wrong and it's a breach of union law. And this is my main problem with this, uh, with this issue. Basically, uh, they are once again giving some months of leeway for uh, governments who never acted in favor of the general main European interest, who wanted to veto the entire European recovery package. They are just giving a free ride to Mr. Orban ahead of the elections. Uh, and uh, if the uh, recovery funds are being disbursed, basically this lack of control and this uh, never ending legal battle uh, could just very well end uh, in a place where you know, nothing is applied uh, before the next Hungarian elections at April. And, and we know from history that Mr. Orban uses the European funds for political leverage. Uh, Opposition-led cities uh, very often receive much less or even zero support by, when cronies and loyal um, leaders uh, profit much more. And we haven't spoken about his family members and the oligarchs who sustain the system. Michiel? is equally critical. The new regulation on rule of law conditionality, which has been mentioned already a few times here, obviously because it's so important, um, where basically the decision was taken to, uh, to sacrifice um, our principles of rule of law for the sake of short-term political expediency and those funds being released. And if the institutions want to lead the fight against corruption, then they have to start by setting the right uh, example. Rule of law needs to be more than just a talking point. Another suggestion, a step further to make a proper link in between money and values, would be to make the disbursement of EU funds conditional on joining the EPPO. Catalin explains what the European Parliament is suggesting to better link money and values. We want to see a stronger connection between European money and European values, and, and part of this framework is the rule of law mechanism, the conditionality mechanism, which is a groundbreaking instrument. And this is a great pity that it's not being utilized properly. This uh, mechanism is supposed to be union law since January the 1st, and the commission is, uh, well, still hesitating over its use, and the parliament is determined to fight out this battle in court. Now, we all know that laws and institutions alone won't work. The sheer force of sanctions either. We need to deal with corruption from the very place where it originates. And that includes things as diverse as setting up fair entry systems to national civil service to reduce cronyism, 
or better broadband services and e-government to avoid cash payments and help people know the rights. Carl explains how this could work. We need to have a more meritocratic public service across Europe. There was a survey conducted a number of years ago of 18,000 public servants across Europe, and they found that corruption was much lower in regions where bureaucrats do not depend on political connections for their livelihoods and for their job security. And I think all too frequently in member states, we see this a scenario where on the day after the election, uh, vast swaths of the public service are replaced by cronies and apparatchiks of political parties winning political party. And that has to stop. The second area, gender equality. Now, research has shown that there are that, that there are high levels of corruption in regions where there is a low proportion of women in local council. And that's a very, very stable conclusion controlling for lots of factors. So quite simply, more women in politics is linked to better quality of government. Tackling the problem of corruption and what it means for our democracies is, is too important to be left just to anti-corruption policy. Michiel thinks that the European Union should lead by example, but it is failing to do so. And here I think the EU institutions are sending very mixed messages. Because on the one hand, they call for a tough approach when it comes to tackling corruption. And at the, other, at the same time, they fail to lead by example. Um, to give you one example, the EU political parties continue to condone member parties that are corrupt and undermine the rule of law at home. Because the most prominent example has been uh, Hungary and Orban, but he's not the only one, and Hungary is not the only one, Fidesz is not the only party. Across the political spectrum, there are problems with EU political parties condoning corrupt parties within their ranks. And that impacts their behavior in the institutions, it impacts the way they vote in the European Parliament, it undermines an effective EU policy against uh, corruption. And uh, I think there's a need for introspection by political parties when it comes to, to this issue. Of course, there can be no anti-corruption plan if there is no one to act upon it. There is a reason why liberal governments have been reducing the independence of their courts. While all democratic institutions suffer when the rule of law is under threat, the judiciary tends to take the worst hit as it has no tools to defend itself. This is a phenomenon that I call the rise of the Eurosceptic court in Europe. Michiel is very worried about the increasing attacks to the judiciary. You know, the, the EU is, is, is based on a legal order, and if uh, that legal order is questioned by, uh, by its component parts, then, uh, then the EU is in trouble. So. Uh, it, it, the EU will have no choice but to address this uh, in one way or the other. If, if um, uh, for instance, in Poland, the, uh, the constitutional court there takes the kind of decision that has been uh, trailed as, uh, as, as one that it might potentially take. On the broader point of judicial independence, I think what is absolutely critical is for the political class, for political leaders to stand up for judicial independence. And it's been, you know, it's been much, way too tempting for politicians uh, in, you know, across the EU to jump into uh, debates about issues that are either before the courts or where the court has decided and to strongly disagree with the courts, to accuse them of political bias. And that only serves to undermine uh, the independence of, of the courts. I mean, uh, the UK is now left, but if you remember the discussion about uh, the, the, all the, the Brexit discussions and how the, uh, the members of the Supreme Court were portrayed there by the media as national traitors. I mean, that kind of narrative contributes to a climate in which people no longer respect the judiciary and, and, and may even be open to attacking it. Uh, in the Netherlands, we've seen uh, you know, a, a, a lawyer being murdered uh, who was part of a criminal trial and uh, now a journalist just, uh, just recently. Um, and of course, you, know, the, you, you can't... Uh, always prevent these things happening. But one thing that, that you need as a precondition is for politicians, political parties, civil societies to stand up for this independent judiciary, to defend it, uh, no matter what the decisions it takes, uh, as something that is critical to, to the rule of law in, in our country and to the stability of our society. Until recently, the European Union had few powers to counter these attacks because this was considered a matter of national competence. A groundbreaking 2018 ruling from the European Court of Justice changed this. 
in a case between the Portuguese Judiciary Trade Union and Portugal's Court of Auditors, the ECJ said that because national judges should be considered EU judges, the EU was competent to intervene when the working conditions stopped them from providing effective judicial protection under EU law. This ruling has opened the door to ECJ intervention in other cases, as we are seeing right now in Poland, and the European Union should be making a forceful use of these newly found powers. As a final idea, the bloc should also set up better anti-corruption supervision mechanism, and this includes money laundering. Last week, the European Union unveiled its plans for a new anti-money laundering agency. Michiel explains why the European Union needs to do this. What we see at the moment is that it's, it's, uh, member states are, uh, are all implementing uh, EU rules independently of each other at the national level, and it's not moving fast enough. The requirements imposed by the, the fifth anti-money laundering directive have only been fully implemented by, I think, five member states when uh, the time for that to happen has already passed. And um, there's clearly a lack of urgency, a lack of ambition uh, that uh, is holding countries back. Uh, and one of the reasons is that there's a lack of uh, pressure from, uh, from Brussels to, uh, to act. And I think setting up uh, a pan-EU authority would help uh, generate the kind of political pressure, but also uh, the kind of legal pressure to, uh, to get member states moving. Now, let's turn to most recent events. These past three weeks have been mad for rule of law watchers. On July 15th, the European Court of Justice asked the Polish government to immediately suspend the law that allows the government to penalize judges for the rulings. The day after, the Polish fake constitutional courts said that the ECJ ruling was against the Polish constitution, so it won't comply with it. On July 20th, the Commission sent a letter to the Polish government demanding Poland complies with the ECJ recent ruling of the fake disciplinary chamber, or else it would face daily fines and or another court case. And also last week, the Commission launched infringement procedures against both Poland and Hungary because of government discrimination policies against LGTBQI plus laws. As we also said before, the Commission has yet to approve both national recovery plans because of rule of law concerns. And if this was not enough, a recent decision by EEA countries Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein to suspend grants to Hungary because of democratic backsliding highlights the trends we are in. So this is quite a lot of things that happened in just two weeks, in the past two weeks since we had the event. So I'm really happy that Carl has agreed to join me today to discuss all these things. Hello, Carl, and thanks so much for having agreed to be here today to talk to me about these very, very unsummary topics. So very happy to be here, Camino, and it's very unsummary weather here in Brussels, so uh, that, that fits the topic. <laughs> well, Carl, there are lots of things to discuss. Let's begin um, with the recovery funds, which um, you know, is at the center of, of many of these, of these spats. And more generally, you're rather critical with the European Union's anti-corruption efforts. Why is that? And what do you think the European Union should do? Yeah, thanks, Camino. Well, I should probably temper my criticism of uh, the European Commission and the EU. I'm, I've been a, a, an anti-corruption watcher at EU level for 10 years now. And so I suppose uh, it's inevitable that you will have a sort of jaundiced view of these things after uh, such a length, such a long time looking at these issues. But uh, the critical thing really is that um, the recovery fund has been a missed opportunity because of what it got right, in a way. Uh, because uh, this is not uh, the fiscal stimulus program for Europe, right? It's a little too late and too little for that. But what it is, is an attempt with some, you know, fiscal financial rocket boosters to um, put in place once in a generation structural reforms in much of Europe, much needed structural reforms in much of Europe. And that addresses, I think, you know, my central criticism of, of uh, what 
the EU has done in anti-corruption over the last 20 years, which is that uh, it has approached it piecemeal, uh, it has a too, too much of a narrow focus on EU funds, um, that's partly because of its legal mandate, right? Um, and also because it's, uh, it hasn't taken a more holistic and comprehensive view of this, because dealing with corruption is essentially not about institutions or legislation, it's about uh, changing norms and behaviours, um, it's, it's about changing political cultures and cultures more generally. Uh, and there's been a neglect of that aspect. Um, in some countries, I think there needs to be, it's a case of re-democratizing these countries after decades of backsliding on commitments that they made when they joined the European Union. So that's, that, that, that would be my fundamental criticism, is that uh, there has been a theory, I think, in the higher circles in the, in the EU, that uh, once you have made those reforms, those institutional reforms, those legislative reforms, in order to become a member, that economic development will do the rest. And we've seen the cases like Poland, where that's not the case, right? I mean, Poland has had uh, tr tremendous rates of economic growth and economic development uh, since, since joining. And yet we've seen this fundamental backsliding on, on the rule of law. And the same is true to a certain extent of, of Hungary and other countries as well, Slovenia most recently. So, so this idea that, uh, you know, you, you fulfill your membership criteria and then uh, economic development and it will do the rest it ignores the fact that there has to be a consistent nurturing of um, a rule of law culture, of a democratic culture in these countries, and you can't rely on the internal processes in these countries and the checks and balances in these countries to do that. Right, and at, at the same time, that's a, a tremendously hard uh, piece of work, right? Because as the European Union, um, as a sort of a supranational entity, uh, which sits in Brussels, in Luxembourg or whatever, then if you're trying to change these mentalities, as you say, and I think you're right in saying that's the main thing that you have to do to fight um, a culture of corruption, a culture of, of democratic backsliding, then you stand accused of you know, trying to rule over people and trying to, to change the country and, and trying to impose your rules. And that's pretty much what's going on, um, I would say, at the at sort of the lower level um, of politics in, in, in Poland and Hungary, um, where we see, you know, like, is Brussels making you angry lately, um, Orban's um, campaign and, and, the, and these sort of things. And, and, and basically using Brussels and the European Union as a scapegoat for a lot of the things that the governments do wrong. But I'm going to play the devil's advocate here and, and, and ask you a question. What would you say to those people in Poland, in Hungary or elsewhere in Central and Eastern Europe would say, you know, there are problems everywhere in the European Union. We're seeing, uh, you know, what's happening in places like France or sometimes Spain or other places. And yet we are the bad boys. We Hungarians and Poles are the bad boys. Uh, this is just, you know, stigmatizing us or, or, or finger pointing at us. Uh, what would you say to these people? Should we worry equally about problems in Hungary, Poland, Slovenia maybe, and other places of the Union? Yeah, I mean, uh... On that question, whether there's parity of treatment, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But maybe just to pick up on one topic, uh, one point that you made there, Camino, which is about uh, the uh, the Brussels bashing card that um, the, the Poland and Hungary and uh, other countries play quite often, right? You know, you're meddling in our internal politics, you're meddling in it with our sovereignty. That is, you know, obviously this whole debate is something that uh, many people in Brussels want to avoid, many member states want to avoid for various reasons. But there's a bit of a double standard there, right? Because um, both chronologically, because, you know, Brussels is very, very uh, quick to sort of impose these rules and standards as part of the accession process, right? Uh, and countries know what they're signing up to and they're happy to put in place the reforms necessary before becoming members. And then once you're a member of the club, once you're a made man, you know, as it were, the, as the attitude is, we can do what we like. And, and clearly, it's not like that, and that there, is, there are treaty values and treaty rules which need to be observed. And I think that's all that Brussels, and the Commission in particular, is doing. It's, it's functioning in its role as guardian of the treaties. But it's also there's another double standard, which is uh, that 
the the commission and member states are are very quick to be prescriptive about what countries should do when it comes to their economies, right? There's, we had all sorts of processes established after the euro crisis, the European semester, you know, this macroeconomic surveillance program. And we had the troikas, right, uh, for various countries, uh, which were very quick to be very prescriptive about what kind of structural reforms people should put in place for, you know, pension reform or uh, reforms of uh, taxation system. But, some, but somehow, uh, when the, the subject is not economics, uh, then it becomes, you know, uh, a topic that the Commission and other member states get touchy about and they back off from. But it's no less fundamental, I would say, an issue for the European Union, and at least in terms of the hierarchy of treaty articles, right? Article 2 values on fundamental rights, rule of law, democracy should take priority, one would think. Yeah. And also, uh, I mean, if you, if you want to, to go even farther, when we talk about um, rule of law problems, um, we often talk about, you know, lack of proper oversight and problems at the judiciary uh, level uh, and, and things like that. And that fosters corruption, which is at the end of the day, the thing that we were talking about uh, at the beginning of this podcast as well. Uh, and corruption is first and foremost an economic problem. Um, so that's something that's, you know, I completely agree with you that should be included in, in the whole, uh, you know, European semester and, and economic assessment. So if you want to attack it um, this way, you can do it uh, through the more conventional uh, European Union rules. But coming back to your question about are there problems with the rule of law and corruption everywhere, I mean, there are problems which the, Euro the European Commission has identified in its uh, annual rule of law report uh, in many countries, uh, in Spain, in Italy, even in France, uh, there are problems with what I would say are government-sponsored attacks on civil society organizations that it uh, disagrees with, right? It has labeled uh, certain civil society organizations as part of uh, uh, an Islamo-Gauchist threat to the French constitutional order simply because they disagree with uh, the government about uh, treatment of Muslim minorities in France. Um, uh, not to mention the fact that France has been in a, a state of emergency for what seems like forever, uh, you know, for, for, for you know, five, six years now, right? Uh, so how does that sit with, uh, you know, rule of law standards? Um, however, you know, this shouldn't degenerate into uh, what aboutism, right? You know, okay, you've got your problems, we've got our problems, uh, therefore, you know, there's no reason to do anything, let's all deal with them ourselves. It's very clear that in, in Poland and Hungary, things have um, got to a stage where it's not simply a case of there are threats to the rule of law. Uh, in Hungary, you have a situation where some people would say you have uh, a, a Europe's or the EU's first case of, of state capture, right? Where the main arms of the state have been essentially captured by one political faction, right? So that you just don't have that basic set of checks and balances that you need in a, in a functioning liberal democracy, right? So the Hungarian government and Fidesz in particular has made sure that it controls the judiciary, it controls the state audit office, it controls law enforcement, it controls uh, most of the media now, right? Um, and this has got to the situation where already in 2018, um, the OSCE, which is the main election monitoring body in Europe, uh, declared that the elections in Hungary were free, but not fair. Uh, and next year we have elections in Hungary and there's, a, I think, a great risk that uh, for the first time in the EU, we could have an international body declaring that the elections are neither free nor fair. And what would be the reaction then of the European and the European Commission? I think that's a very different situation from worrying about, uh, you know, say, um, problems with the politicization of the judiciary in Spain, for example, or, 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 or disagreements between the French government and sections of civil society. It's a different order uh, of problem. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think... <clears throat> We, we have all realized that the main uh, way to deal with these things is to, is to, is to identify them before they become a, a Poland or Hungary-sized uh, problem, right? Uh, because obviously this doesn't happen um, overnight. Um, there are signs that you can spot, and that's what the Commission, I think, and more generally the European Union is trying to do with all these reports and you know, all this bi-yearly dialogue with countries and, and, and this sort of thing. So let's hope 
that 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 works this time around. Um, but talking about Hungary and Poland, both countries are, are in really hot water because of democratic backsliding. I have just listed the many, many legal news which happened only in the course of the past two weeks. It just seems absolutely amazing. But the European Union has actually been locked in an escalating legal battle with both um, Hungary and Poland for a few years now. And so far, it has been unsuccessful. I know this is a very difficult question, but what should be the next steps in your view? What should the European Union do, given that nothing seems to work at the moment? It's a difficult question, as you said, but I think the, the first thing they should do is um, uh, finish the job, right? Um, we know these processes are, are, are slow and they take time to yield results, uh, but two or three years ago, uh, or four years ago now, in the case of um, Poland, uh, the European Union started these Article 7 proceedings, right? Uh, these, this is the main mechanism that the, in the treaty that the, uh, the EU has for um, bringing into line countries that are backsliding on the commitments that they made when they became, the commitments on, on rule of law and democracy that they made when they became members, right? Uh, and uh, this has, this procedure has a number of advantages. It, it keeps the spotlight on what's happening in these countries. It holds these countries accountable for the backsliding and the reforms that they need to make. And also there's the ultimate sanction as well, that they can be stripped of their voting rights. Um, and just even initiating this procedure was considered impossible four or five years ago, right? It was considered the nuclear option and it was never going to happen. Now it's happened. Then people said, okay, well, yeah, but it, it's been initiated, but we will never reach a stage where there was any real sanction. Um, and I think that's all changed now. You can see a sea change in the attitude of member states. I think their um, patience with Hungary in particular has become tested to the absolute limit, partly as a result of this homophobic law, which was introduced by um, Orban. But not only that, uh, um, also Hungary's role as a, as a blocker and a troublemaker on foreign policy issues. Yeah? So you see where um, the European Union, where it's trying to develop a coherent stance on China, for example, can't because uh, Hungary refuses to sign up to um, statements or sanctions on China in the council, or at least it tries to delay them. Um, and so in terms of just developing a coherent response to global events, the fact that you have Hungary, which is very close links to China, and also in Poland, you're also seeing uh, a government that is developing closer links with China. It, it, this, is a, this is a real problem. Um, so that patience, I can see that uh, uh, has been strained to the absolute limit. Uh, and I can see a sea change in, in the attitude of countries which said, OK, this is a problem for the Commission to sort out. It's a technical problem to this is a political problem that we need to deal with now. So, um, so that's maybe the first point. Keep faith with the, the, the existing processes. Be aware that this requires a political solution. But if I can add just maybe one more thing, Camino, uh, is that there is also this question of the link between the funding. Um, so, so we talked about one benefit of being a member state, which is you're, you're part of the decision-making process, you get to vote. That can be taken away under the treaty. Uh, but the other main benefit of being a member is the funding, right? So that, that, thanks to a new regulation that's been put in place last year, can also be taken away, but on slightly more narrow grounds, right? And mainly on um, uh, threats to the rule of law and uh, endemic corruption that would risk, put at risk EU funds. Uh, and I, I think that should be the main focus now of, of, of um, uh, Brussels and member states' efforts, particularly when it comes to Hungary, because there's clear evidence of um, waste mismanagement, fraud and corruption of EU funds, stretching back a decade now. Um, and I think that's important to bear in mind because uh, focusing just on the homophobic law, as, as wretched as that is, as wretched as a piece of legislation, as provocative as a piece of legislation uh, as that is, uh, risks playing into the hands of Orban, who is using this issue to rally his base ahead of the elections quite simply. 
Uh, and I think making uh, the funds conditional on repeal of that law um, only uh, might be a mistake. And there's other ample grounds for withholding funds from, from Hungary and ways to trigger the new mechanism without, without looking at uh, other aspects, other um, intolerable aspects of, of, the, of the Orban and Fidesz agenda. Yeah. All that said, do you think there is a risk of polexit or how, how would you say this, hung, hung exits? Yeah, hung exits probably is maybe one of the ugliest of the exit neologisms. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very valid. Maybe only matched by irexit, which I've heard in the context <laughs> of, 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 of Ireland. Um, so uh, maybe Maggie exit would be a better... Ah, uh, uh, yeah, that sounds better, yeah. It, it sounds more euphonious, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I think this is not seriously on the cards, um, mm -hmm. and I also think that it would be a bad strategy for a number of reasons. Uh, I, I know that uh, this has been raised as a, as a prospect by Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte in the most recent yeah. Council meeting, right? Uh, but I think it was, it was phrased provocatively, and I think the point was not the Dutch want to see Hungary leave the European Union, it was... Uh, a question why are you in the European Union when you don't agree with its basic values you know why are you in yeah. the club when you don't agree with the rules of the club um, yeah. and that's a question that's a question for I think Hungary to answer for Orban to answer but also I, I think there's just no popular support in these countries for leaving the European Union mm -hmm. the contrary there's overwhelming support for European Union membership uh, despite all the government-sponsored attacks on Brussels and the Commission over its migration policies and other things over the years. I mean, support for European Union membership in Hungary is still well over 70%, even higher in Poland. So it's uh, electorally, it's not a smart move by these um, governments to to invoke the, uh, the mag exit or the pole exit card. But uh, yeah. I, I think what would be even worse, actually, is that, and we're seeing elements of this already, is that they, they, they stay in the European Union, but undermine it from within. Mm -hmm. So there's some of these things we talked about already. You, you, you take the money, you ignore the values. You, yeah. um, you're part of the decision-making process, but you undermine what would be a coherent foreign policy response to human rights abuses around the world. Uh, right. Or um, simply because that doesn't jive with your ideology, your worldview, and your values, right? So, yeah. um, so I, I think the the, the the more difficult question really is is you know how do you make sure that countries live up to their obligations when they're in the club? And I think that's a question as a set of politics, but also some of these new um, measures that the uh, the European Union has brought into line, and also I think the the recovery fund. Um, that, that uh, could be an opportunity here as well. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I keep on trying to, to think when, when talking about this, um, these topics is that governments come and go, right? And I know that obviously governments are usually <laughs> voted by people and they are supposed to represent people. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it's a difficult um, balancing act when you have to deal with governments which are on a clear uh, collusion course with the European Union, uh, but at the same time, they are not necessarily representing, um, you know, what Hungary or Poland or, or Hungarians or Poles want or mean. Uh, so I think it's very important to, to, to have this in mind when we talk about, you know, for exit or Mahia exit or whatever. Um, that this is about um, governments which are transient and that I think we should go beyond that and think of um, what's happening on the ground and, and, and what is that the population and what is that the, the Poles and the, and the Hungarians and the Slovenes and, and others want. Um, so that this um, sort of ties neatly with my next and, and, and last question, which is what can Brussels or the Brussels institutions do to engage with the population, the, the civil society, in countries where we're seeing um, either high corruption levels or a high risk of democratic backsliding or democratic backsliding happening already altogether. So one important area of support is, uh, is for civil society. Um, but the way that the European Commission has 
ad- approached this in the past is by funding uh, big established civil society organizations um, who have the ability to get EU funding and navigate the very complex rules to get EU funding. Um, and it's been short-term and it's been project-based. And actually what you need is for the European Commission to fund directly in these countries uh, democratic movements that sometimes spring up overnight in response to some of these um, authoritarian efforts. For example, the efforts by the um, Polish government to restrict radically um, the reproductive rights uh, in, of women in Poland. And so the, the, the women's movement that emerged there is something that needs support, it needs legal support, it needs psychological support from the very vicious attacks by the government and government-sponsored media. Um, and that can't be done at the moment in the current framework, the way the Commission funds civil society. Uh, so um, it needs to be more nimble, uh, it needs to be more flexible, uh, and it needs to be more long-term in the sense of building up community-based organizations that can provide the essential support for this re democratization effort that I'm talking about. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm of the opinion that defending the rule of law might be the European Union's most pressing and most difficult task over the coming years. And that's, you know, Brussels, the institutions will not succeed um, in, you know, by sheer regulatory force alone, nor would sanctions be 100% effective as they tend to affect citizens, as we were talking about, more than governments. So I, I think to uphold the rule of law, the European Union needs a broad strategy that includes credible and enforceable anti-corruption measures, but also uh, support to civil society movements that we were, we were talking about and a change of mentalities, which I think is probably the most difficult thing to do. But for the European Union and its member states, they need to support a rules-based international order, which is an order that the Union itself is based upon, is absolutely existential. So I think, you know, this whole thing might sound very technical, but it's probably going to be one of the most important political problems um, in, the, in the years and the decades to come. So thank you very much, Carl, for, for having um, talked to us um, and talk us through all these um, very complicated um, issues. And I'm sure that we will continue the conversation um, in the near future, unfortunately, about all these, uh, about all these things. But uh, for now, I think that we should, you know, all wrap up for the summer and, and try to enjoy some sun before we come back to these thorny topics um, in the autumn. So thank you very much, Carl. No, thank you, Camille. So thank you very much for listening. This has been a joint uh, CR uh, Open Society Foundations episode. I hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.